I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapters 3 and 4 this evening. It was a number of years ago that a family from our church went to a local park to enjoy some sledding or some sliding in the snow on a hill. And what should have been a routine winter activity turned into a terrible tragedy when a drunken teenager on a snowmobile careened through that park, crashing into and over the family's two-year-old boy. The boy was airlifted to a large hospital in Minneapolis where I met the family, and we'd huddled together in the waiting room until a team of doctors came and explained to us that the boy's injuries were not compatible with life. The head trauma that little Ryan had experienced was too great to survive. There are no words to describe the horror of that evening. First on the sledding hill in the park, I was not there. But then in that room with those doctors, I was there. And then finally, around the hospital bed of that boy, as we were led to his side so that mom and dad could say their final goodbyes to their two-year-old boy. In the minutes that followed, we saw the little body struggle and die. It was my job to comfort the family and to counsel the family that night, but I was in no condition to be strong because I had never seen anything like that before. And it tore me apart in a unique way, for at the time, my son was the same age as that little boy. In fact, they were friends, and it, they played together in the church nursery. And I remember the family repeatedly saying to me, how could this happen? This doesn't make sense. How could this happen? This doesn't make any sense. And in fact, that's how the news coverage would later describe the matter as a senseless tragedy. Now we understand the senselessness of drunk driving accidents on the roadways, but if a drunk driving accident with a car on the road is senseless, what do you call it when a, a drunk teenager on a snowmobile in a park kills a two-year-old boy? How do you make sense of that? And in the most graphic and horrific way, I saw a little boy die. In the latter part of Ecclesiastes 3 and also in chapter 4, Solomon reports on the things that he had seen. The things that he had seen in his life. And they didn't make any sense to him either. All that he had witnessed under the sun. If you look at chapter 3, verse number 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. So I perceived. It's the same Hebrew word, ra'ah. It could be translated, so I saw, I think, as it is in the English Standard Version. Look at chapter 4, verse number 1. Then I returned and considered. It's the same Hebrew word, ra'ah, translated, um, or it could be translated, I saw. Look at chapter 4, verse number 4. Again, I saw. How about chapter 4, verse 7? Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. I saw 
all the living who walk under the sun. It's as if Solomon is saying, I have seen everything. I have seen it all, and what I have seen doesn't make any sense to me. And folks, whatever Solomon saw in his day, I would contend that we've seen much more because of communication technologies that allow us to see the photos or the videos of what's happening in every corner of the world in real time. We can watch the senseless human atrocities and injustices and violence and crime and debauchery and corruption every night on live TV if we want to. And then there's, there's YouTube. Now listen to this. According to YouTube's own data, 300 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. Five billion hours of video are watched each month. Five billion different videos are watched every day. Half are watched on mobile devices. Folks, what have you seen? You've seen it all. And Solomon didn't have satellite television, and Solomon didn't have YouTube or, or, or some of these things. But even then, what he had seen in his life compelled him to ask the question, why doesn't life make any sense? As I look around and I observe or I witness all that's happening under the sun, it doesn't make sense to me. And so for us, as we watch the insanity of our world, perhaps we ask the same question, why doesn't life makes sense. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 16 through chapter 4 verse 16, Solomon identifies five areas of life that don't make sense when you see them. Let me pause briefly for prayer and then we'll look at them together. God in heaven, I ask that you would go before us now as we study your holy word. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and allow me to preach better than I know how. I pray, God, that you would grip us with the vanity, the frivolity, the emptiness, the, the soap bubbles of this life that leave us empty and hopeless and wanting. And God, as we look around, we see the senselessness of this world. I pray that you would help us to turn our eyes above and see Jesus, for he is ours. Jesus is mine. I pray this in his name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse number 16. Moreover, Solomon says, Solomon the preacher, the Kohelet, who's assembled a, a, a gathering of people and he's speaking to them about, about all that he has learned over the course of his life. He says, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there there. Number one in your notes, if you're following what I've printed for you, number one, injustice in life doesn't make sense. Injustice in life doesn't make sense. And no matter your religion or your morality or your ethic or your worldview, every one of us has a human instinct. It is the sense of justice. And even the unlearned, uneducated children will cry out, that's not fair because of that sense of justice. And so what do we tell them? We tell them, get used to it. Life is not fair. The problem for Solomon was that even in the place of judgment, chapter 3, verse 16, even in the place of judgment or justice, there was still unjustice. 
the one place where you would expect to find justice, perhaps we would assume perhaps in the court system, they were corrupt. They were actually the places of injustice, and the same is the case today. Sometimes innocent people are convicted. Other times, guilty people are exonerated. And the courts overturn each other's rulings, and sometimes judges unilaterally legislate from the bench. And so we watch the news, and we see the system that perpetuates injustice, and we lament that the world makes no sense anymore. Are you with me? Have you ever thought that to yourself? This world has lost its mind. Even worse, according to Martin Luther, Solomon is not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice can't be corrected. It's that bad. And so how do we deal with the injustice, or at least the, the perceived injustice in our world? Solomon counseled himself in verse number 17, I said in my I love that phrase. He's counseling his own heart. I said in, in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And, and borrowing from the theme of the previous context, remember earlier in chapter 3, this was our study last evening, Solomon knows that there will be a time an ordained or appointed time when God will make things right. Whatever iniquity or inequity or injustice that you have seen in this world, God will deal with it in his time. Meanwhile, verse 18, I said in my heart, and by the way, that is, that, again, that is a great line. I think so often, Christian, we need to counsel ourselves in our heart and process the craziness of our mind. I said in my heart, this is what my heart knows, verse 18, concerning the condition of the sons of men or the sons of Adam, fallen humanity. God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. God tests us so that we might see something different than the injustice in our world. And he tests us so that we might see that we are like animals. Now, he doesn't say that we are animals. He says that we are like animals in a very specific way, namely, verse 19, for what happens to the sons of men or the sons of Adam also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, so as one dies, so, one, so dies the other. Surely they have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and all return to dust. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or if you're an animal, when you die, your body goes to dust. It's what's common to, to living creatures. Verse 21, who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. And later in Ecclesiastes, the preacher answers this very question in chapter 12, verse 7. He says, the dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. And so Solomon knew that God created man and animal as, as different. Man is a living soul, Genesis 2-7. And an animal only dies and is reassimilated into the organic matter of the earth. Man's soul is eternal. Solomon understood that. But in the meantime, before man and animal all die, life is senseless because of the injustice that we experience. And the conclusion of this perspective under the sun the conclusion of this earthly, ground-bound view of life is summarized in verse 22. So I perceived 
that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? We can't see what happens after we die. Just injustice while we live. And there's a second area, Solomon's life, that doesn't make sense as he sees it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. There's really no better word to use than the word that's in the text, and I would use that word oppression or oppressors. Number two, oppression in life doesn't make sense. There's injustice in life, and we've all experienced that. There are then oppressors in life, or oppression in life, and that doesn't make sense. And he uses the form of the word three times there in verse number one. And so think about some of the oppression that might exist in our world today. In some places, women are oppressed. In other places, Christians are oppressed. In some places, the poor are oppressed. In other places, the color of one's skin or one's origin causes the powerful to oppress them. And in every place, it appears, it seems like to what we can see with our eyes, that there are, there are people suffering at the hands of others. And really, folks, that has been the story of human history. It, it reminds me of the noble model, motto of of the United States Army Special Forces. And in Latin, the Green Berets, their motto is, in Latin, de oppress liber, or to free the oppressed. And so whatever Solomon saw in his day led him to the horrific conclusion in verses 2 and 3, therefore I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who were still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, was never even born, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Here's what Solomon's saying. If you are alive, you are going to be hurt by somebody else who oppresses you. It's better that you were dead than alive. Or it's better than you were have never been born so that you would not have to suffer the oppression of someone else around you. Solomon says, that's what I've seen. It doesn't make any sense to me. And folks, this is a pretty dark view of life. But this is exactly the mentality of countless people who despair of life and want to take their own life because they can't make sense of their suffering. Maybe it's the youth that's being bullied. Maybe it's the wife who's being battered. Maybe it's the one who's suffered a loss without explanation. Don't judge Solomon here. Because Solomon's logic is our own logic. It's the very same argument that we use in our context today. This spring, this past spring at Fourth Baptist Church, we had a gentleman in our church take his own life. He was a longtime member had a good wife, three daughters. He was professionally successful. He was our Awana commander. And he committed suicide on a Tuesday, just 48 hours after leading our Awana Clubs program on a Sunday evening. There's so many questions that we can't ask, and there are 
so many answers that we'll never know. At his funeral, I acknowledge that sometimes, folks, there is a pain that is greater than the pain of death. And that's the pain of life, the pain of living life. Sometimes there is a fear that is greater than the fear of death. It is the fear of life, the fear of living life. And at times, people can get to the point where life doesn't make sense in their suffering. Perhaps injustice, perhaps oppression. Look at verse 4. Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And Solomon continues to to spiral down into his evaluation of the senselessness of life. And the English word in verse 4 is envy. It could also be translated jealousy. It's, it's the spirit of competition that drives us to work hard and to keep up with the Joneses and to get and to do what everyone else has and does. And, and I'm going to offer the term rivalry. Number three, rivalry doesn't make sense, beginning in verse 4. Rivalry. And on the one hand, that's the engine that drives our economy. That's the very heart and soul of capitalism. And we're motivated to work and, and we desire to achieve more than the next guy. Or at least as much as the next guy. At worst, that's sinful. At best, it's vanity. It's grasping for soap bubbles, you see. And it really doesn't make sense. Of course, not everyone is equally driven. In fact, there are some who don't even care. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So one man has explained the errors of verses 4 and 5. If you look at verse 4, compared to verse 5, one man has said this, as toil can be self-consuming, verse 4, so idleness can be self-cannibalizing, verse 5. You either sell yourself to achieve in verse 4, or you destroy yourself by your apathy in verse number 5. And while there is error in both ver verses 4 and 5, the perfect balance is in verse number 6. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So here's the Pastor Matt paraphrase of verse number six. I, I, I think this is what Solomon is saying. It is better to take one cookie out of the cookie jar than to try to, to take two hands full of cookies but not be able to get them out of the cookie jar for the grasping of all of the cookies. By the way, I like Oreo cookies. Oreo cookies are the best cookies. If you've, never, if you've never tried this before, next time you get a sleeve of Oreo cookies from Sam's Club or Costco or wherever you go, right? Get a sleeve of Oreo co cookies and get a jar of peanut butter, right? And you take, it's, they're about 600 calories each, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and you dip those Oreo cookies in that peanut butter, tall glass of cold milk. Oh, that's, that's heaven right there, right? What Solomon is saying in verse 6 it's better to have just a, a handful with quietness, that contentment, than to have both of your hands full, grabbing for the cookies, 
or the soap bubbles. It's all vanity. It doesn't make sense. Why do we strive and labor and struggle in this rivalry to do better or to gain more than the next guy? We perpetually claw for more and more and we compete. This rivalry. Where's the contentment? It makes no sense. And there's another disappointment in the life of Solomon. He mentions something that makes no sense to him, and that'd be number four. Loneliness makes no sense. Loneliness in life makes no sense. Look at verse seven. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. Solomon is simply giving us a verbal record of all that he has seen as he looks around his world. He says, loneliness doesn't make sense. In verse 7, I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. I think the idea of verses 7 and 8 is really embodied in Charles Dickens' character, Ebenezer Scrooge. In the classic Christmas carol, Scrooge worked and worked and worked and then went home to a drafty house, all alone, to count his money, to go to bed, all alone, no friends, no family. And the issue here isn't having money or not having family or friends. The issue is is one's wealth at the expense of family and friends. And that is loneliness. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, Dad, if you work 70 hours a week and you're always on the road and you miss your family. What good does that do? A bigger house for your family to be alone You'd think that money would satisfy, but what do people do with lots of money? They buy friendship. They try to hire companionship. I would submit to you, if you have family and friends, you are rich. And I think Solomon here looks around perhaps his palace, and he's got gold this and gold that and money stacked in the corner. He's all alone. He says, what's the point of of that. Solomon then tells us the value of friends in verse number nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly Broken. Of course, this is a, a poetic passage that is often read at, at wedding ceremonies. It's applied to marriage, and I think that's appropriate, but I think we could extend this principle to many different relationships, and I would contend that we could apply this Old Testament Hebrew poem to the New Testament church. In this way, we are stronger Christians because of Christian friendship and fellowship. You are strengthened in your life as a believer because of occasions like family camp at IRBC with other believers. Your part, your attendance, and your membership in your local church 
is not about hearing good music or listening to a sermon, but it's about edifying one another and provoking one another to love and good works as you see the day approaching. It's about one another, and you strengthen one another in the body of Christ. Some people dismiss the need for the local church and attendance or or membership, claiming that they can worship God alone. Well, I can worship God out on the lake, and I can worship God in my deer stand, and, you know, I just uh, established religion, church. I just, I worship God in my own way. You, You show me in the New Testament a freelance Christian. It's not there, but rather in community, in assembly, the body of Christ. And Solomon here recognizes loneliness doesn't make sense. There's one more thing that Solomon saw. Chapter 4, verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the the wind. What is Solomon saying? He is saying it is better, verse number 13, it is better to be insignificant than significant. Because power and influence are temporary and transitory. Big deal if you're a big deal, because after a while, you're not a big deal anymore. Once upon a time, I was big man on campus in Bible college, or little man on campus, however you you, you care to see it, but that's ancient history now. And so I would say this, number five, celebrity in life doesn't make sense. I know your, your notes are complete, but allow me to conclude with, with some of this explanation. Perhaps the best way to explain Solomon's lament at the end of chapter 4 is to illustrate it with a football analogy. And I, I think perhaps there are some football fans here this evening. More than 100 million Americans huddled around their TVs this past winter to watch Super Bowl 52 there in Minneapolis in our hometown Super Bowl 52 between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New England Patriots. Now, we were pretty disappointed as Vikings fans because our Vikings didn't make it. And we so wanted them to be in the Super Bowl. They got close, but didn't make it. We have a, a joke about the Vikings, uh, and the joke goes something like this. What is the difference between the Minnesota Vikings and a car in the junkyard? The car in the junkyard has a title, we say. <laughs> You'll get that. And, and maybe someday, maybe someday the Vikings will have a, a title. But nonetheless, I'm a Vikings fan. For the last five or six or seven years, we have had a, a Viking, in fact, a starting offensive lineman, Joe Berger, of the Vikings, has been part of our church and his family part of our church and, and part of our school. And it has been fun to, to get to know a multi-millionaire professional athlete, a celebrity, as a personal friend. And our families have spent a lot of time together. They're, they're true believers. They're, they're dear Christian friends. If any of you are Vikings fans and, and you know anything about football, Joe Berger just retired this past spring after 13 years in the NFL. And Joe would tell you this. 
If he were here this evening, he would tell you that his celebrity, while not sinful, is soap bubbles and vanity. And he would tell you it was great while it lasted, but it's now over. And think with me about this. Winning the Super Bowl is every NFL player's dream. It was Joe Berger's dream as well. But the, the winnings, the, the winner's earnings are a big deal. The, uh, about $100,000 per player to win the Super Bowl. The Vince Lombardi trophy is a big deal for there's lots of history that accompanies that trophy. And then there's the Super Bowl ring, right? The ring. And Tom Brady has enough of them as far as I'm concerned. It's time for someone else to, to get a Super Bowl ring. But someone quipped how strange it is that the winners of the most manly sport get a piece of jewelry, right, <laughs> when, they, when they win the, the Super Bowl. But that gold ring is symbolic of the elite glory that is given to a Super Bowl champion. Yet that glory is fleeting. Listen to this. Charlie Waters of the Dallas Cowboys had his five Super Bowl rings stolen from the closet in his home. Joe Gilliam won two Super Bowl rings as a member of the 1974-75 Pittsburgh Steelers, but he pawned them off for a few dollars after being caught in a vicious cycle of drug addiction and homelessness. Another former Steeler, Rocky Blyer, sold his four rings to cover divorce and bankruptcy proceedings. The Cowboys' Thomas Henderson had his Super Bowl uh, 12 rings seized to pay back taxes. Former Raiders All-Pro cornerback Lester Hayes sold his Super Bowl ring to pay for dental work. Uh, Mercury Morris of the Miami Dolphins sold his ring to raise money to clear his name during a drug trafficking case. And folks, that ring can be as fleeting as the glory that it supposedly stands for. Because the next year it'll be gone. And the next year someone else will be the winner of the big game. Maybe the Vikings. But the luster of that fame and that fortune is simply the, the glory of fool's gold. And it doesn't make any sense. Celebrity doesn't make any sense is what Solomon is saying at the end of chapter number four. Houston sports writer Steve Campbell put it this way, one of the dirty secrets about the Super Bowl is that the winner's high often has less of a shelf life than a container of cottage cheese. Folks, look around you at life. Life under the sun doesn't make any sense. It's random, and it's cruel, and there's injustice, and there's oppression, and there's, there's rivalry, and there's loneliness, and there's celebrity, and man's experience under the sun is senseless as we can see it. And then it's all over. So what do we do what do we do with the time that God has given us, the theme for, for a week, redeeming this time? And I would simply say that we need to think upon and look upon the cross of Jesus. The most horrific scene in all of human history, the most senseless act in all of the history of mankind was the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. An innocent man went to a cross, shed his blood and died for we who are guilty. 
Folks, that makes no sense. How do we make sense out of that? He suffered oppression. He suffered injustice. He died alone. But, but folks, there are things that don't make sense to us on this earth, under the heaven or under the sun, yet know that in the eternal sovereign plan of an all-wise God, he has purpose, he has control, and it is therefore Solomon's conclusion that we fear that God. We keep his commandments. And while that doesn't make sense to us, it is the demonstration of God's love to us. And so in conclusion, I encourage you not to look at the things around you under the sun, but look above. Look to Jesus. Lest you despair like Solomon. Let's pray.